All right, let's turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Continue our study of the book of Matthew in chapter 20 this morning. When I was in uh, high school, I went with a couple buddies of mine to Six Flags to ride the roller coasters down in Houston. Yeah, it's uh, now defunct, but it was fun at the time. And uh, as, we were, as we were running around through the park, I noticed some of the staff for Six Flags were, were walking around. They're kind of they're kind of stooped over. They had a little, little tray that was on the end of a stick and a broom, right? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that before? And they're just kind of walking around, hunched over, sweeping up these tiny little bits of trash. And I had this, this really vivid mental picture of looking at them and saying to myself, now there's a job that I will never do. So maybe you can kind of guess where the story's going, Right. When I went to seminary, I, I picked up several of what I would describe as pretty menial jobs to help earn my way through seminary. One of those was I sat in a little booth and I took tickets at a parking garage, multi-story parking garage. And I took the job because I could sit there and I could study for uh, much of my shift. But uh, part of the job also was to get out of the booth and to walk up and down the entire parking garage with a little tray on the end of a stick and a short broom, you know, sweeping up little pieces of trash. And I would try to do it when there weren't a lot of clients coming in to park their cars, right? So no one would see me. But inevitably, I'd be sweeping up my little bits of trash and someone would drive by and I would, you know, I'd try to avert my eyes. But, you know, I could just feel their condescension, right? I could just, I could feel them looking at me saying to themselves, now there's a job that I will never do, right? I could just feel it and I wanted to cry out and say, you know, I'm, I am worthy of your respect. I have a degree from Texas A&M University, right? Greatest campus on the earth. I have a college degree. I chose to give up a full ride to graduate school in order to go to seminary. So not only, right, not only am I worthy of your respect, but I'm humble. <laughs> and I'm spiritual. I'm a great person. There's something in all of us. We long for greatness. Now, you might describe it in different ways. We want people to respect us, to honor us, to not look down upon us, to not be condescending toward us, to not pity us, but actually to think that we are worthy. And I would argue that that's natural and normal. I would say that that was something that was born into us. Right? This, this longing to be truly great resides in our design. It's how God made us. Psalm chapter 8, David wrote, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David said, look, when I, when I see the vastness of your creation, God, I see its beauty, its wonder, the power of storms, wind and rain and lightning and thunder. I'm amazed, God, at your greatness. And I wonder, how could you even consider mankind? Small and puny though we are. He goes on, yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. I look at all the works of your hands and I say, this is amazing. This is vast and wonderful. God, how could you even care for us? And yet, you have made us to be great. I mean, how great is that? There's God and then there's men and women. That's our design. We are designed for greatness. And so I want us to read Matthew chapter 20 
in light of Psalm chapter 8 and God's design for humanity, for men and women. Okay, so Matthew chapter 20, I want you to read with me in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now again, before we throw James and John and their mom under the bus, which we will do in just a moment, let, let's, let's remember Psalm 8. Their request, in a sense, is it's, it's very normal. This longing to experience the greatness that God has caused to reside in us. In fact, if you turn back just one chapter, 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus actually said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit on twelve thrones, judging over the twelve tribes of Israel. Right? He promised them, in fact, in fact this greatness. And I, again, I'm just going to say, I think that's natural within us. It's normal. There's an interesting study that was done in 2015 uh, by a group called Fatherly. It's, it's uh, online parenting uh, advice. And they did a survey of three and four-year-olds and asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, the number one answer was superhero. Right? <laughs> superhero. And for some of us, that never leaves, right? We, that's what we want to be. We want to be great. The problem is... Uh, if I can borrow C.S. Lewis's term, we're bent. Right? We don't really understand what true greatness is or how to go about experiencing it. Our minds are bent. Our emotions are bent. Our will is bent. Everything's bent. So we don't understand the nature of true greatness. We don't understand how to find true greatness. And God has to reorient our perspective and this natural longing toward greatness, to find it as God describes it. And so I want you to read with me now Matthew chapter 20. Let's read verse 20 again. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are able. He said to them, well, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom the Father has prepared it. Jesus says, you don't really know what you're talking about. Do you remember when we were little kids and some adult was bossing us around, right? It's a parent or a teacher, and we said to ourselves, Boy, when I'm an adult, that's, that'll never happen, right? I'll boss everyone else around. No one will boss me around, right? I'll be in charge. Uh, that cup of adulthood, I can take that. That cup of parenthood, no, no problem. I'll take that. And our parents were thinking to themselves, you have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus says to James and John, you have no idea what you're asking. So what were they actually asking? Well, I, I have a couple thoughts. First, I think that they were seeking honor without humility. They were grasping for honor without humility. Now, this scene is really so wrong in so many ways, right? I mean, James and John, what's your mom going to ask? I mean, this is humiliating. Seriously, these are adult men. 
these are, and, you know, and I, I try to replay this in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, was she just that strong a personality, right? So she grabs James and John by the earlobe and she goes, you come with me. We're talking to Jesus now. And you're going to get those. Thro- I mean, is that what happened? I don't know. You know my, I suspect it's more like this. I think there was collusion among all three of them. Because remember, James and John were pretty forceful personalities. Jesus labeled them sons of thunder. When the Samaritans were a little bit disrespectful to Jesus, they said, Jesus, do you want us to pull in Elijah? We are ready. We will call down hail, fire, brimstone from heaven and just burn up the town. Jesus goes, you don't know what you're talking about. Right? So I think, I think it's a family thing. <laughs> they, they all get together and they're grasping because this is their concept of true greatness. You just reach out and grab it for yourself and you take it. Honor without humility. I think they were seeking authority without submission. To read verse 24. Hearing this, it says, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. The key word in these verses is over. The throne is the highest room in the house or highest seat in the house. But James and John aren't trying to, to usurp Jesus. They're not trying to get him off of his throne. They just say, let us just have the next highest seats in the house. Right? We, because we don't want to have to submit or give in to the other 10 at all. Right? The other 10 immediately become indignant. Why? Are they, are they worried about the culture of the disciples? Right? Well, man, James and John, we have this really wonderful team here and we're all humble and submissive to one another and there's just this great, wonderful culture. No, that, they weren't mad about that. They were mad that they didn't ask first. Because right? they wanted those seats next to Jesus. Right? They're grasping for authority or power without willingness to submit. And I would suggest to you, this is something we learned from our adversary who drug us into this pit of misunderstanding the nature of what it means to be truly great. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 says this. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now this is actually a a description of the king of Babylon. There's a similar one of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28. Literal earthly kings. But for centuries... Biblical scholars have argued these two descriptions are patterned after a description of Satan, the adversary, who said, I will ascend above the stars of God. That is, I will rule over the other angelic forces. I will, in fact, make myself like the Most High. There will be no higher throne above my throne. This is the pathway of pride. This is what we've learned from our adversary, the devil. Andrew Murray wrote a short little book entitled Humility, and in it he said this, there is nothing so natural to us, to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Pride is at the root of this issue. Listen again to verse 22. Jesus answered and he said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking, James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, yeah, we got this. We are able. That's pride. 
There's nothing so natural to us. Our bent, broken, fallen human nature. Nothing so natural to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Notice what he says here. Nothing so often hidden actually from our sight. We are proud, but we often don't even see it in ourselves. So how do we unmask it? Let me uh, tell you a few things that I periodically see in myself. I recognize pride or the symptoms of pride by the way I think of myself. Do I demand my rights or am I willing to surrender my rights? Do I desire to be promoted or do I work for the promotion of others? I see pride by the way I think of others and by the way that I treat them. Do I have to be in control of situations or am I willing to surrender control or share control? Do I feel the need to change others or to fix them or do I love them? Do I focus on their faults or do I praise their good qualities? I see symptoms of pride by the way I expect to be treated by others, by how I feel when they slight me. When I am criticized, am I defensive or am I teachable? Am I easily offended? You know, if you're that kind of person that everyone has to dance around your feelings, you know what that is. It's just pride. I deserve to be treated differently. I'm worthy of your respect. I chose to sweep up trash. That's pride. Symptom of pride is my unwillingness to confess sin, to seek forgiveness, whether to God or others. Maybe you you heard me reading that list and God's spirit just kind of drilled down deep and you say to yourself, ouch. I see that. I see that in myself. Or maybe you heard that list and you said, thank God that's not me. Oh, that's, I mean, I got other issues, but I'm glad I don't struggle with pride. (laughs) You got an issue. Right? Either way, I, whatever response stirred up inside of you, the fact is this. We were made for greatness. That's our design. There's God and then there are those creatures made in his image called men and women. Designed to rule and reign over all of his creation. The only ones with the capacity to be in deep personal relationship with God. And to reflect his character and his authority over all the earth. That's greatness. But we're bent. We think we just reach out and grasp it and take it for ourselves. And so we need God to renew our minds, restore our minds, help us really understanding what is, understand what is true greatness really all about. So let's read again chapter 20, verse 24. It says, hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So if we're going to be truly great, we need God to renew our minds, restore our minds to understand what is true greatness, what's the pathway of true greatness. Because we don't think about it right. We, we want honor without humility. We want uh, to, to have authority and we're unwilling to, unwilling to submit to God or to others. And I would argue there's one more thing going on in the disciples' mind, and that is this. They want the crown, but they don't want the cross. They want the crown, but they don't want the cross. Uh, 
Look back in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Notice what transpired right before this interaction. 20, verse 17 says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, That's nice, dear, but can my kids have the seats on your right and left? I mean, you see how just completely inappropriate this conversation is. And this is not the first time it happened. The disciples really were continuously arguing about who was greatest. And frequently they had that argument right after Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. Then they talked about who was greatest. Or sometimes they just didn't get it. It didn't sink in. Sometimes they ignored it. Sometimes they completely resisted it. Remember, just a few weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 16. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of living God. And Jesus says, man, Peter, you nailed it. That's the foundation I will build my church on. But you need to know something. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Be crucified, but I'll rise from the dead. And Peter said, no. No. Why? Because he wanted the crown without the cross. He, he for Jesus and for himself. He didn't, he didn't want a path of suffering. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. That is, the, that is the path of Satan. Because true greatness requires suffering. In fact, I want to give you three truths about this pathway to true greatness. The first is this. Suffering is compulsory. It's not an elective in your curriculum. It's a compulsory course. Everyone has to take this course. Read with me again verse 22. Jesus answered, James, John, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, yes, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, that is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. What was the cup that Jesus drank? In the Old Testament, it's a very common image. The cup was the cup of God's fierce anger, his, his wrath against sin poured out. It poured out against sin. Jesus took that wrath of God's sin against himself. He drank it all the way down, drank it to the dregs. That is the punishment that was due for, to us for all of our sins, Jesus drank. That was the cup of God's wrath and all of the suffering that went with experiencing the weight of the sin of all of the world. Every man and woman and child for all of time, Jesus drank all of it down. That was the cup. Now, the disciples didn't have to drink that exact cup, did they? No, because it was all poured out upon Jesus, but they had to drink the cup of suffering that would go along with associating themselves closely with a suffering Messiah, a crucified Messiah. That is, if they were going to follow him closely, align themselves with Jesus and his purposes and his gospel, they would also have to suffer. In fact, upper room discourse, right before he went to the cross, he told his disciples, look, if they persecuted me, the teacher, the master, the Messiah, they will persecute you. Count on it. Paul told the churches exactly the same thing. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you associate closely with Jesus Christ, you will suffer at some level in this life. You may suffer the loss of friendships. 
When I first decided that I wanted to, to, to pursue Jesus, that it wasn't something that I just borrowed from my family, but I wanted my faith to be mine, I didn't have any friends. God had allowed our family in that moment to go back to New York where I had lots of friends, but it was at that same moment that I was wanting to walk with Jesus and my friends were moving fast and furious a different direction and I had no friends. I had no friends. Trissy had the same experience. She was 19. She decided to start walking with the Lord. All her friends left. She had no friends. It's probably one of the things that brought us together. <laughs> but we had developed more friends by that point in time. But we know, what it, we know what it was like to be without friends. You may experience the loss of friendship. You may experience the loss of the um, honor and prestige that your colleagues want to bestow upon you. When I graduated from A&M with a degree in economics, I was thinking about grad school in economics, but I decided not to do that, but to go to seminary instead. And I had a couple profs who knew me well who said, yeah, you know, we, we can see that. But I had others who literally pulled me into their offices and cursed me to my face. You are a blankin', blankin' idiot. They thought that they could persuade me with that. <laughs> Don't go to seminary, you blankin', blankin' idiot. Uh, you just proved my point. You need me. No. That just kind of came to my mind. You might lose friends. You might lose respect and honor. Uh, you might lose uh, promotions in your job. You could lose, I've seen uh, loss of inheritance from family. Christians written out of the will. You could lose uh, marriage. Had another really close friend who was, he was in grad school up here at A&M. And uh, he became a believer and started really uh, walking with Jesus. And his wife divorced him because he was a Christian. Later on, he wanted to go to seminary, and the seminary was a little bit hesitant because he had been divorced. And so his ex-wife wrote him a letter telling the seminary what an incredible husband he was. I, I read the letter. She wrote a letter saying what an incredible husband he was, but she didn't want to be married to a Christian. In other places, you can lose your property, your freedom, your health, your life. We don't face those things here in the United States, and so sometimes we, we get ourselves emotionally separated from what the church experiences around the world and what the church throughout most of the history of its existence has experienced, which is loss of property, loss of health, loss of freedom, imprisonment, loss of life. And you know what? That's what the church is going through right now around the world, even now. If you decide to closely associate with Jesus as well, you may not lose your life or your property, but you will suffer loss. The closer you lay hold of life in Christ and in Christ alone. Mandatory, right? It's not an optional thing. Suffering is compulsory in the pathway to greatness because that was the pathway that Jesus took. And he's our example. Second, service is mandatory. Service is mandatory. Chapter 20, verse 26. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, right? If you want to be great, you're a servant. No, Jesus says, let me, let me, let me show you. It's actually a slave. You, you give up your freedom. This is a word that Jesus applied to himself, who although he existed in the form of God, took the form of, a slave. 
He gave up his freedom. That, that's humility. Most beautiful picture of that, I think, other than the cross, is Jesus washing disciples' feet, right? He takes off the robe that shows he's the teacher. He puts on the robe that says he's the servant, gets on his hands and knees and washes every foot of every disciple between their toes, all the mud, all the dirt, even Judas who would betray him. That's humility. That's humility. Humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is going low. Literally, it is to place something low. You put yourself low in order to lift someone else up. Jesus didn't think less of himself. He knew that he was the eternally existent son of God. He wasn't, wasn't down on himself or his role. Oh, I'm just a lowly slave. No, this is the creator of the universe in his strength and security. He gets down and he bends low. He puts himself low. That's humility. Placing yourself low to lift others up. Listen to what James says about it. James chapter 4 verse 10. He says, this is humility. Okay? Humble yourselves in the presence of God. Peter says the same thing. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I want you to notice this is an imperative. It's a command. And if there's a command in the New Testament, it's something that you can do. It's a choice you can make. Right? Others can try to humiliate you, maybe successfully or unsuccessfully, but only you can humble yourself. You choose to place yourself low. That's humility. An intentional choice. So if we're going to be great, we have to serve. If we're going to serve, we have to be humble. But if we're really going to humbly serve, we've got to be secure in who we are, like Jesus. Right? Not because we're thinking poorly of ourselves or we're, we're in a, a pit of, of self-pity, but we, co- we know exactly who we are. We're just like those men and women described in Psalm chapter 8 who were designed to rule and reign over all of God's creation. You're a son or a daughter of the creator of the universe. God has destined you and designed you for greatness. Now, in that strength and security, place yourself low and serve. Suffering, sacrifice, humility. I want to read to you one of my favorite poems by Amy Carmichael. She spent almost her entire adult life, serving the poor in India. She wrote a poem called, Hast Thou No Scar? It's written from the perspective of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. He says this, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Lean me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, who has no scar? If we choose to follow the pathway to greatness that Jesus followed. It's a pathway of suffering. It's a pathway of sacrifice. It's a pathway of service. That's the normal Christian life. Third truth. Patience is indispensable. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. What's the proper time? In my mind, it's now. Right? It's now. I'm, re- I'm ready. Can I have a seat on the right or the left? 
Now, Jesus, I don't need to take your place, but at least make me great. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And he says, no, probably not now. I mean, you may experience some, some moments of, of praise and adoration from your peers and your family around you, those moments where they say, wow, yes, you, you're amazing, you're great for this accomplishment or that accomplishment. Might even, they might even praise your humility, and you can say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it will be short-lived because you, you long for something more and deeper and lasting. Turn back with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And Jesus said, blessed, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, Jesus, you're going to have to renew my mind to understand that. Blessed, happy, fulfilled are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. In fact, you should rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, not yet. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. But it's, it's, it's almost certainly not yet. But know this. God's not cheap. Any sacrifice you make, any suffering you go through, he richly rewards. He longs to. God is not cheap. He loves to hand out reward for his faithful followers. Turn back to chapter 19, Matthew 19. Verse 27, Peter said to Jesus, behold, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? That's a good question. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall dwell, sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, everyone, now he, he expands this to include us, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. I think you need to reorient your perspective on greatness. And the things that really matter to me. Jesus says, and what really, really matters to me is that you're humble like me and you serve like me. And the one who is bent low that the world overlooks is the one that I call great. But men and women, we just won't get this unless God's spirit really changes our minds. Read with me chapter 20, verse 28. Whoever wishes to be first among you, that one shall be your slave. Why? Well, in the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses a really beautifully graphic word here. That word for ransom is the price that was paid to set the slave free. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to actually hand over, give over his life as the purchase price, the payment required to set a slave free. We were born slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to fear. We've got to grasp greatness. Why? Because nobody else is looking out for us. We got to, if we're going to get anything, we've got to get it for ourselves. So we reach and we grasp. Jesus, you know, I've, I've set you free from that. Right? Because I've removed that debt of sin, the barrier between you and God. Now, 
You can become a son or a daughter and you can know that you have eternal life and you can be confident that you were destined and designed by the creator of the universe to be great and to be significant and to be meaningful. And God says, yes, you, you are wonderful and worthy in my eyes because of my son. Believe in him. That's really the the root and essence of the gospel. In quoting to you from Andrew Murray, he said, humility is the one indispensable condition of a true relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point of a relationship with God. Because we come to God and instead of saying, God, you do realize I'm bringing something to the table here, right? How fortunate you are to have me in, in the kingdom, right? We, we come with our little things. I know I've got some issues here that need to be dealt with. There's a little bit of pride. That, but otherwise, Lord, and we come in a sense with our hands full. But to understand the real nature of the gospel message, we, we empty our hands, our hands and we say we bring nothing. And come, instead we come as, as beggars who are hungry and need to be fed by Jesus. And we we reach out and say, Jesus, please give me life. I offer you nothing, but I receive everything in return. That's what faith is. Faith is just reaching out to God and saying, God, yes, thank you. My sin has created a separation between you and me. And only you can remove that separation of my sin through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you. And now I'm full. And now I'm rich. And now the spirit speaks to me. And says, you don't have to grasp after greatness because I'm looking out for you. And you don't have to follow the world's path because I'm looking out for you. And we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust him to exalt us at the proper time. On the other hand, if we keep following the world's path, Christians, and we'll just keep grasping for greatness, you know what? God's going to stand in our way. Peter also says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He stands in the way of the proud. Why? In Proverbs, it says pride is an abomination. That is, pride is, it's false worship. What's being held up? Me. And so he says, that's an abomination. That's gross. You have no idea how inappropriate it is for a creature to be worshipped. God says, I'm alone, the one who's worthy to be worshipped. I don't don't give away my glory. I will share it. I will share it. I like to share it. I like to share my glory with with creatures made in my image who love to worship me, but you can't take it away from me. And so I'll stand in your way. So you want a really, truly great life? You need to just stop this foolishness of pride. Stop grasping. Instead, learn to follow Jesus. Humbly, sacrificially serving and going low. So what's our application? Real simple. Uh, Serve. I want you to find one person this week that you can serve. Go low and give. Um, Preferably somebody who doesn't deserve what you give. Do it kind of like Jesus would. We we didn't deserve anything from him, yet he chooses to give and give and give to us. So find one person in your life. Maybe they don't don't deserve something from you. Find a person that you can serve and give to who um, maybe they don't even see you serving and giving. Just your reward is just with the Lord. Or if they see you, you're able to point to Jesus and say, you need to understand this is not me. I give because I've been given to so much. So I want to challenge you really in a, a very specific, tangible way. Maybe it's a, an act of service. Maybe it's the gift of the gospel message. I, whatever it is, find one 
person that you serve. Because as we begin to practice that habit, God changes our character. He teaches us to be those people who consistently go low and give rather than grasping to exalt ourselves. We lift others up. And not because we think less of ourselves, but because we're so confident that we are loved deeply and secure in Jesus. I'm going to leave you with one more quote by Andrew Murray. He said this. Here's the path to the higher life. Down. Lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and bless. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed your suffering, sacrificing, exalted son, Jesus, to us. And I pray that this week we would have greater courage to follow in his footsteps because we know who we are. We know we're rescued, redeemed, ransomed, that you have paid the price to get us out of slavery to sin and death. And so we have confidence and we can, we can step into these moments confidently with humility and serve. I pray, Father, that others would see Jesus in really tangible ways through this church this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week serving. Love to hear uh, some of your stories if you want to send those to me. We'll see you next week.